Let's talk about the plague of pornography for just a minute. Wow. This is one of the biggest issues that so many deal with in these latter days, but few talk about it or even know how to talk about it. And when they do talk about it, it's usually in a private setting with a leader who is expected to know how to navigate struggles with pornography. Thankfully, Leading Saints has put together a remarkable resource called Liberating Saints. It's a virtual library with 25 plus presentations focused on helping leaders be better prepared to help someone overcome struggles with pornography. We cover topics like how to minimize shame in the bishop's office, how to talk with children about pornography, and even how to talk about female pornography use in Relief Society. If you'd like to review the Liberating Saints library at no cost for 14 days, simply go to leadingsaints.org slash 14. That's leadingsaints.org slash 14. While you're at it, we'll give you access to all of our virtual libraries that cover several leadership-related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit leadingsaints.org slash 14. Today I'm in Ogden, Utah with Clay Olson. How are you, Clay? I'm doing well. Awesome. Now, who is Clay Olson? I, there, there's so many. I mean, you are carrying the world on your shoulders, as we talked about before we, we hit record here. So when people ask you what you do, what do you say? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, I guess it depends on the audience I'm speaking to. But first and foremost, I'm a father and a, a husband. And I have three beautiful daughters, one on the way. And I have nice. uh, a, a wonderful, supportive uh, wife. And um, we uh, just relocated up to uh, northern Utah up in Cache Valley, and we love it up there. We've been in Salt Lake for over 10 years, and, and we're up there now. So that's, you know, who, who we are in, in outside of work. And, and through work, yeah, I, I, I uh, am very focused on cause uh, initiatives. So I started a nonprofit called Fight the New Drug, which focuses on educating young people on the harmful effects of pornography and other forms of sexual exploitation through science, facts, and personal accounts. Started uh, many other initiatives are, are around that. Uh, everything, uh, we sit on boards for child sexual exploitation and, and, and human trafficking. I have a software company that focuses on mental health and addiction recovery and the healing journey. So uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a collage of many initiatives and efforts that all center around trying to help people um, improve their lives and live live life to the fullest, and and ultimately, you know, live uh, a life that is true to their core values and who they who yeah. they feel like they are, their true self. Yeah. So I mean, there's there's a million different directions we can go with that that intro, and let's just start here. Let's say your phone rings. And you answer and somebody says, Clay, this is, I'm a bishop. What typically, like what, what are the, when you connect with church leaders, especially bishops, like what direction does the conversation usually go? I mean, for many, many years, it was all centered around pornography and the struggle that bishops are facing, uh, helping their membership uh, around that subject. Yeah. Just due to the fact that, I mean, for over a decade, for now 13 years, been working with professionals around the world, neuroscientists, uh, uh, you know, uh, clinicians, uh, therapists, researchers, professors, learning about this subject, religious leaders, and and kind of cultivating that and trying to influence a younger generation to yeah. to live differently than than previous generations on the topic. So 
you know, for a long time it was that, but as of late, uh, we, I, you know, I just spoke last Sunday at a, at a, uh, married student ward around mental health and, part, mm. and, and, and relationships. So I guess it, it, those two things are probably the, yeah. the two topics that we cover. Nice. So let's just start with pornography. Obviously every bishop is almost cliche to, I remember being called as a bishop. That was my first appointment. Someone came in and confessed their struggle with pornography. And, and I was a young, young buck and didn't really have much life experience. So, so I didn't really know what to say to him. So what, like when we talk about pornography, what are some general topics that we sometimes miss as, as church leaders when it comes to the, the battle of pornography? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think at, at the risk of sounding maybe cliche, like clearly there are many individuals uh, within church leadership and just the general membership, of the LDS church and society at large right, that yeah. are just completely <laughs> oblivious to the scope of the challenge that we face. We mm-hmm. hear about it in talks and people mention it, but so, for so many because it's so secretive and because it's under the surface for so many, many, they're just wildly naive to the scope of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you have, you know, 10 young men in your ward, there's a good chance that you have 10 young men struggling with pornography. Mm-hmm. And I wish that was an exaggeration. So, you know, that, that's one thing. But I would say another aspect to this conversation that I think a lot of bishops and leaders miss is that, you know, the solution for so many bishops over the years, um, when it comes to these challenges, is like, all right, in order to overcome this challenge, we need to, to boost your spirituality. And therefore, let's turn to the scriptures. Let's turn to prayer. Let's turn to fasting. All of which, by the way, let me go on record and saying, are fantastic <laughs> things that members should engage in and youth should engage in when addressing these things. It can only help. However, we miss the mark with behavioral challenges, addiction challenges. You know, we would never do that with a physical illness. We'd never do that with a a medical struggle where someone comes and says, I'm dealing with this disease or uh, this, uh, you know, my leg is broken or whatever the physical challenge may be. We'd never say, okay, the answer here is is to pray. Of course we should pray. And of course we do pray for those Mm -hmm. that have diseases and challenges of that nature. But we also turn to professionals, uh, medical professionals to provide the necessary care for our physical bodies. Why then are we so hesitant to turn to professional guidance and support with regarding regarding our behavioral challenges and our mental health challenges? And so that that's one thing that I would I would point to leadership and saying, hey, treat the the professionals and or professional services or or experts in these fields of behavioral or addiction challenges or mental health challenges as your ally, as you would a medical doctor in respect to how we might support an individual overcoming these issues. I'm all about increasing spirituality and increasing their connection to God, which will ultimately you know, yield magnificent results. But there is uh, an actual healing journey that needs to happen. And oftentimes that requires kind of some guided support that isn't just you know, check in with me once a week and see how you did this week and, yeah. and, and kind of white knuckle your way through this. And if you have faith... God would take this this challenge from you, yeah. or it should become easier, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. and and we all want those kind of beautiful, miraculous experiences where you know, literally, God could and and has for many people taken you know uh, addiction uh, desires away from them, kind of in an instant. They just mm-hmm. kind of you know uh, rise up from a prayer and it's gone, and that 
And for some, that's a reality. And for most and for many, it is a process. Mm. And setbacks are part of that process. And perfection, if your standard is perfection out of the gate, you are setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment and ultimately despair. And the role that shame plays in that despair, the literature is really clear on shame perpetuating the negative behaviors rather than supporting uh, behavior change. Mm. And so if we can do as much as we can to cultivate an environment and a relationship that really bolsters self-compassion and encouragement and really focuses on the good rather than just fighting the bad and avoiding the bad. If we walk into a dark room, our first reaction isn't to turn off the darkness and all of our attention <laughs> is to turn off the darkness. Rather, it's to turn on the light. Right. And so, you know, looking at that in our lives and saying, well, what, what do we need to turn on or what do we, we need to activate or what do we need to focus on? And, you know, the definition of darkness is the absence of light. So it cannot coexist uh, when light is present. And so rather than just fighting the darkness, we need to focus on building the, the mm. light within us and within our lives and, and our environments and our spirituality, our connections, which will dissipate the power and seduction of addiction yeah. in a beautiful way. So what would you say to a bishop who's, who maybe reaches out and gets a, a therapist involved, right? Sends maybe this uh, young father who's, who's struggling with pornography to, to a therapist and, you know, it's a therapist they found maybe through family services or wherever. And off they go, is, is there like, is therapy enough or just traditional therapy? I mean, what, what other resources or approaches should we consider when, you know, mentoring somebody through struggles with pornography? So I'm, I'm a huge advocate for for therapists and for professional intervention. Mm. However, I'm also not of the mindset that that is the only path toward healing and recovery. I think that they provide a level of expertise and knowledge and experience and credentials that really have, have an, an understanding of, of this process. But, but studies have shown that the effectiveness of different modalities are less critical in one's recovery compared to one's connection and relationship with their Sherpa or their guide or their coach or their therapist, oh, whoever it may be. So if that connection is strong, whoever is kind of in their corner supporting them along the way, they have more, a higher chance than any specific, you know, subscription to a particular modality of, of therapeutic approach. Yeah. So someone may go to a therapist and and that bishop or whomever's looking, say, all right, what did you talk about? What do the therapists say to do? But it may be start with, did you like your therapist? Did you feel like you connected with them? Do you feel like they would be a strong advocate or a resource for you? And making sure that that connection's in place before you even worry about what effectiveness of the therapy is. Yeah. And and, and if it wasn't clear earlier, I, I, I also think that it doesn't always have to be therapy, right? Mm -hmm. There is a number of ways to address one's you know, behavioral challenges or mental health challenges. And uh, for some, uh, professional intervention is a welcomed and powerful addition to their kind of entourage of support. And for others, that may not be necessary. Uh, and there's other methods or, or resources or, or tools that, that can be implemented to support them on that journey that may not require mm -hmm. I just want to look at, when I, when I think about people improving with mental health or overcoming an addiction, it can be such a Mount Everest to them that they just feel like, why even try? I can't even like make it two days or three days. Mm -hmm. 
And we need to really focus, rather than the summit, we need to focus on the next right step. Mm. Just that next right step and really put attention to that and set small, achievable goals along the journey and recognize that it's going to take time. It may have taken years to get to the, to the depths of addiction that they now find themselves. It might take years to kind of get to a place where that is no longer a part of their life. Yeah. So recognizing the, the process and the journey. And, and so again, therapeutic intervention may play a role and it, and we just want to meet people where they are and identify kind of how best we can support them along that journey. And, and for some that does uh, involve professional yeah. support. And that may require that uh, you know, one week the individual has seven relapses. So the next week when he has six, you celebrate that he had six relapse. Not that we're, you know, still behind, you know, on, on the progress that, that yeah. is progress. Yeah. And, and ultimately addiction and uh, mental health issues really kind of boil down to a discrepancy or, or sorry, deficiency in one of three key relationships, relationship with self. And that might be how we, you know, what we eat, uh, how we treat our bodies, uh, how much sleep we're getting, how we think about ourselves relationship with others that might involve like our connections with our, our spouse, uh, our, our, you know, past trauma with others uh, in our lives and our connection with higher power. Mm. So those three connections or those three relationships are, are critical and, and a deficiency in any of those camps can really set us up to be very vulnerable for addictive patterns in our life. Now, here's the beautiful part though. The scriptures and the prophets have encouraged us to not just know information, but become Christ-like and to become more than we currently are. And the process of becoming Christ-like is the very same process of the healing and recovery journey. It is strengthening those three key relationships of self, you know, others and, and our higher power and our connection with God. And as we do so, as we work to improve in those areas, even small iterative improvements in those areas, the results are catalytic and profound for individuals overcoming this challenge. Man, that's that's insightful. So this concept of others, because typically what happens, I think, in our, our tradition is, is somebody who's struggling with pornography comes into the bishop's office, confesses, and then it's like, okay, between me and you, we're going to figure this out. And of course, yeah, we'll you know work God into the equation and whatnot. And, and maybe we'll even loop in a, a therapist, you know, we'll make sure therapy is. But outside all that, it's like nobody can know about this, whether that's said or not, right? And so I'm curious, like, what's the role of a quorum or a relief society in the recovery process? Oh, man, I I cannot advocate enough for approaching recovery through community. I was uh, invited to attend. I was speaking up in Boise, Idaho, and I was speaking at a conference, and um, I was invited to attend a meeting the night before the event. And I actually didn't know what the meeting was for. I, I literally just thought I was kind of like going to sit, uh, like fly on the wall. I, w- I was visiting a friend up there and he just kind of said, hey, you know, come to this meeting. I show up and about 40 men were coming in and it was an old seminary building. Well, I guess it was a current seminary okay. building. But it was an older seminary. <laughs> it was an older seminary <laughs> building and people were just flooding into this classroom. And I, I quickly picked up on the fact that this was a, a recovery group. This was a, like a... Like a 12 steps. Yeah, a 12 step uh-huh. group, right? Uh-huh. And um, for specifically pornography. And I sat and I observed and I watched and I heard people share. And I can tell you, I sat and wept 
in that meeting mm. because what I saw wasn't a bunch of broken, you know, sad, addicted men. What I saw were captains in the Lord's army, just spiritual giants that were that had overcome something very challenging or were in the process of overcoming. And the brotherhood and the strength and the unity was palpable. And it, you know, knocked me off my chair almost. I was just kind of like yeah. blown away with the, the the spiritual strength in that room. And you could tell just the 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 power that they all received. Some of them had been recovered or 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 had been in recovery and and had not struggled with pornography for years. And you think like, okay, you can be done. Yeah, you've graduated. Yeah, you're right? done. You're, yeah, move on, right? But but they felt such a brotherhood and they and now they're like supporting and being kind of a sponsor to others. And I, anyway, the model of that can produce just magnificent results. So yeah, sometimes it's, uh, so whether a therapist is involved, many of those individuals in that room also had therapists they were working with, or that they had a program or an app, something that was like supporting or a companion to their healing journey, but they had each other. And that might have been the most powerful component to their recovery tapestry mm-hmm. is that they had one another. They had someone that they, they were, uh, that they were accountable to, that that was in their corner, that it, if they were feeling weak or vulnerable, they, they made a call and, and, that, and the person on the other line knew exactly what they were dealing with and what they were, you know, what they were struggling with and they would kind of be there for them. So the bishop plays an important role in all of this, but the bishop can't be playing the only role in all of this. Mm-hmm. There are so many resources at our disposal collectively, whether it be um, professional services, whether it be apps and education and information, whether it be groups that, that, are, that are organized at the stake level to support individuals or, you know, community groups that are available in the area. I just think that there's so much and, and bishops need to be more aware of those resources and that education and information. And they need to lean into them more and encourage them more mm-hmm. and not take it all on themselves. I think bishops, when they get first get called and they realize Oh, good heavens. <laughs> a lot more people struggle with this than I, uh, than I was aware of. And this is taking up a, a good chunk of my time and energy. They need to, to call upon, you know, everyone in this space to, to support their, their process. Yeah. Yeah. That's so helpful. So, you know, as you, especially th- like fight the new drug that creates some incredible awareness of just the magnitude of this issue, it's so easy to be in like overwhelmed by it. And it's like, how do I even create space to even hold that or even fight against it and whatnot? And, and in the context of like church, like there's the, the cliche, like pornography lesson, right. And there's, you know, mm-hmm. we've, we've all heard it, the, the platitudes that are, are stated there, but when you're a leader and you hear the problem or you, you witness as a bishop, these people filing in your office, really struggling with it. It's easy to think, okay, we are going to do the fifth Sunday of fifth Sunday lessons, and we're going to talk about this and make sure everybody's aware and whatnot. And so you want to sort of build this awareness within your community group. Sometimes it doesn't land well or whatnot. And you've done, I would guess, thousands of assemblies for high schools, for youth groups. So what would you say to that leader who's wants to address this issue in like a public gathering setting? Like, how do you do the pornography lesson in a way that actually makes a difference or it, should you even do it? Oh, I, I'm, I mean, biased here, but like, I clearly think you should do it. I think a community kind of fifth Sunday or fireside is a great platform to do it. If it's the only thing that happens, it may not, you know, have the sustaining effect that you want, but as a part of your efforts in this mm-hmm. area, 
It was great. And I've done, I can't even count how many firesides I've done in Fifth Sunday Lessons on this topic. And I think that they, and I've listened to, to many others, and, I, and they, they are beautiful opportunities to break open or a dialogue in a healthy environment where we reduce shame. We really amplify the beauty of the repenting process and the power of the atonement. And I think it also helps to educate, in, in what I have done in the past, it, it really helps to kind of wake people up to the issue and to be more aware of the scientific evidences of its harm. You know, the church has been talking about the harmful effects of pornography for a very long time. But science, even at the time that they began talking about it and became kind of a societal challenge that needed to be addressed, science had not yet at that time caught up with truth, much mm. like back when the you know, word of wisdom was, the revelation was given to Joseph Smith, science had not yet caught up with truth on tobacco and smoking. It wasn't until 1938 that Dr. Raymond Pearl was working at John Hopkins University, and he did some research that connected the dots between lung cancer and smoking tobacco, and that evidence started to come to light. Hmm. Um, he died, actually, before his, his research came to the surface. Nearly 15 years later, finally... Reader's Digest came out with a, an article called Cancer by the Carton, which sparked a 40-year debate in our society as to whether or not tobacco was indeed harmful. <laughs> well, 40 years. 40 wow. years of yeah. back and forth. And they got doctors saying, hey, this is good for you. This is soothes the nerves. It cleans out the lungs. Like, and they really pushed the envelope as far as what they were claiming the, the research to, to be saying. And over time, of course, science just kind of you know, caught up with the truth and, and then society caught up with the science. And we all now know that tobacco is harmful. Well, we're in that debate today regarding pornography. Mm -hmm. Science is caught up with truth. There's thousands of studies identifying the scientific harm to individuals, relationships, and society. Society is still catching up with that science. And that's a process. But there's a lot of eye-opening information, particularly with youth, where they don't always respond incredibly well to... Sunday school answers on on topics of pornography. Mm. They more than any other generation, they were, they want the why. There's actually studies showing that that the rising generation is more trusts very little. They have the least amount of trust for institutions and information than uh, than they than previous generations. But what they do trust is science um, is, mm. is high up on that list. So harnessing the science that favors the position of the LDS church and the beliefs that we hold, taking that science and coupling it with the values that we hold is kind of a, a very powerful approach to educating young people. It's kind of like, here's what we believe and here's the why, just like we would with, with you know, drugs. Here's what we believe. The body is, is sacred and, and you know, we don't want to put anything into our body that will harm our body or or disrupt our cognitive capacity to make right choices. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, here's the why behind pornography and, and here's the effects. That combination we have seen in doing this for a very long time now just have a really impactful impact on young people because they kind of say, okay, I wasn't sure what I believed or my parents, you know, want me to believe a certain thing and I'm kind of like finding my faith. But this makes sense and there's logic to it and I, I can understand it now. So now I have the scientific evidence and my belief system that both mm -hmm. validate a position that I now hold. They're not in opposition. They are kind of unified. And now 
I have a much stronger capacity to then deal with it moving forward. Yeah. So I, I can see a lot of church leaders, they're, they're just defaulting to the belief system and approaching it that way, which makes sense logically yeah. why you do that because, hey, we're in a church. It's Sunday. Well, like, and also they're largely unaware of what the science has revealed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And parents are no different. Parents for a long time, you know, they just say, like, you know, this is what we believe. Don't do it because uh, uh-huh. it's, it's wrong. It's bad. Yeah. It's evil. It's a sin. Yeah. It's the it, plague. Like, yeah, just, just avoid it. Yeah. yeah. Avoid it. But, you know, they're hearing from all other areas of their life that it's fine, it's normal, it's healthy. Yeah. Let alone the the internal D- drive. desires and yeah. drives that are pushing them towards this, right? Correct. And uh, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance with that. So, mm-hmm. But then they, they get the research and they realize that, historically speaking, we are in a very unique place where this isn't normal. This hasn't always been. This isn't a get with the times kind of a thing. This is something that is... We've kind of been a guinea pig over the last decade around this topic, and we're now catching up with it. And, and they can start to rise up and fight for true love and, and avoid mm-hmm. the hollow counterfeit. They can be the champions and, and the captains to, to steer their generation in a new direction. So there's a lot of power in that youthful energy, and we can tap into it. So I know that I kind of steered a little off there. Uh, coming back to the Fifth Sundays and Firesides, I think opening up dialogues and discussions that that bring to light some of the why in addition to the values and the beliefs and the atonement and all that which is ultimately the most important kind of message we can hear in our hearts but sometimes this the, through this other approach we can kind of get there faster for many young people particularly and uh, because the doors open up and they start to swim right towards the deeper meaning but I'm very in favor, and we've seen a lot of good that's come of it. Every time we go do a fireside, or I've done a fireside, I always get a message from the bishop uh, shortly after saying, I'm booked up with appointments from yeah. my young man, and it's beautiful, and it's like, you know, leading towards uh, repentance and, and healthier living, and uh, it's ultimately very good. So whether that's through an expert in, in a specific area or, you know, the individual organizing some thoughts in a lesson like, Yes to all of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Engage, open the discussion, make it, you know, reduce shame, make it open and not so dark and secretive. And, and the more open we can be about it and about our own vulnerabilities and struggles, the more human we become to those around us and yeah. the more capable we are to address them. So speak to me more about this concept of reducing shame. Cause I think intellectually people hear that like, yes, I want to reduce shame in my, in my ward or quorum or whatever it is. But sort of the application of that is sometimes hard to carry out. So how do you go about reducing shame or destigmatizing things as you're talking about this topic? Yeah. So uh, shame is, well, we, we know more about shame than we've ever known, in part thanks to you know the wonderful work of Brene Brown and, and many others that she has uh, referenced in her literature. But we know more about shame than we've ever known. And we know more now just how toxic it is particularly with with regard to individuals uh, attempting to overcome struggles that they're facing. And so not only is it uh, a good message to hear, it's imperative mm. that we we bring this into the dialogue. So we get messages, we've received hundreds of thousands, and I'm not, that's not a made up number, hundreds of thousands of messages from young people around the world over the years. And, and I cannot tell you just how many use words to describe themselves as they're writing in about like their own struggle, that they are broken, that they are a monster, that they're a pervert, that they are sick, that they are disgusting, that they are, you know, all these words that they use to describe themselves because they hate themselves so much because Mm. 
they know that their behaviors don't match up with their value system. Mm-hmm. And it really creates just the mo- this mounting shame that ultimately is so crippling to their capacity to overcome. I, I said earlier, there's li- literature research coming out that shows that shame is more uh, closely associated with perpetuating the problem, the, the very problem that they're trying to overcome mm-hmm. and pushing them deeper into that, that cycle of shame and addiction. Whereas guilt, on the other hand, very different. You know, mm-hmm. we, we often kind of put shame and guilt sometimes in the same camp, like the, the, they're almost synonymous and they couldn't be further opposites. One perpetuates the problem, whereas the other, you know, and we've all heard this and this is a bit cliche, but you know, shame is I am somebody bad or I am bad as a person and guilt is I've, I've done something that, you know, doesn't align with my values and, and, um, but that doesn't change like you know, mm-hmm. the, the worth that I hold myself. Very, very different. And, uh, guilt on the other hand, they've studied guilt and they found that it is closely associated with, with changing, uh, behavior change improvements and improvements in, in, uh, addictive patterns and behaviors over time. So two things that are, you know, very different, have very different results in where they can lead us. So then we start to think, well, what's driving the shame? Well, oftentimes what we see is is it's not so much others putting the shame onto you, you know, like a bully saying you're a bad person or, you know, why don't you do better? Or you, you know, better. I mean, it's it's sad that those kind of messages still exist and Mm -hmm. people do hear that when they come and they open up to a religious leader or a parent, there are times that they do hear uh, very negative and shameful messages. Like with the best intentions that that with person With the best has, intentions, right? but nonetheless, something that just really yeah. drives that shame home. Right. Yeah. Most often, it's actually coming from themselves. So it's mm. nothing that the bishop said. It's nothing that the parents said. It's the perception of what they're saying in their heads or what they're, or what mm. they're thinking of me, and therefore yeah. my value goes down. And so... We need to work extra hard as leaders or as parents to help alleviate that shame and let them know that they are not a bad person for struggling with pornography. They mm-hmm. are not a bad person for struggling with pornography. I can't say that more directly or clearly. That does not equate bad person and that they are loved regardless of their behaviors. They are loved by their parent and by their heavenly parents regardless mm-hmm. of their struggle. And to really bring that message home and to help them realize that, you know, the parents and the bishop, that we're all on on their team. Mm -hmm. We're there to help. We're only there to help and to support and encourage, not to create, you know, limitations and, you know, not let you pass this or, or do that or engage in, you know, attend this activity based on the fact that you're not worthy. Like, the bishop's not there to kind of put barriers up. The bishop is there to love and support and encourage mm-hmm. and to cultivate uh, their their repentance process. So, yeah. So one is is communicating that, and you can do that in formal settings. You can do that in individual settings. It's really communicating this love that the Savior has for them and love that they have for that individual, and that they're not a bad person. And it might sound like, of course, they're not a bad person. Like that doesn't need to be stated. But that's my point: is that it often does need to be stated. Mm-hmm. It often does need to be communicated to that individual. They need to feel like, as they do uh, when they open up, that they are just met with just unconditional love. And that's what the Savior would be there with them. And they say, "I'm struggling with this way," and the Savior would just hug them and say, "I love you so much." Mm-hmm. And it would not be met with like, "You knew better." Mm-hmm. Like, why'd you do that? And 
it also comes down to like, you know, you know, helping the individual overcome that shame. And there's a, there are things that the individual can do to overcome that shame that, that is so gripping and, and crippling. And part of it is, I love this analogy, but there's a man by the name of, his last name is Casa Grande. He was a, a filmmaker for, uh, he was a cameraman for Shark Week. Oh, wow. Nice. Uh, <laughs> if you've ever seen Shark yeah. Week, uh, Discovery Channel Shark Week. And, and, and uh, he was asked what he did, you know, what, what would he do if a, a great white was swimming right at him, which is literally my worst nightmare. Like that just like kill me <laughs> right then. I'd like put my head right into the mouth and say, okay, let's do this. Let's be over. <laughs> um, but no, like, what, is he, what do you do? And, and he said, well, you got to do something that kind of is counterintuitive to the great white. And he said, you got to, I take the camera and I point it right at the great white and I swim right toward it, which kind of triggers this kind of innate reaction in the shark that says, well, wait a second, hold on. Like nothing chases me. Yeah, I'm the predator I'm here. I'm the predator here. What are you doing? <laughs> and and it, so it kind of, it, it causes this kind of, this defense mechanism in the shark and it swims off and it, and it kind of veers, even though clearly they're the dominant you know, creature in, in this situation. They, they're the ones that kind of veer off because it is something that uh, came out of that was unexpected. So mm-hmm. With shame, we encourage people to kind of like face their shame directly and to treat themselves with kindness and, and look at their shame as a separate thing from themselves and, and face it and swim right at it, which kind of disarms its power over you. And it kind of, uh, it, it almost dissipates its, its control over your, your psyche. And, and oftentimes it kind of veers off and you say like, oh my gosh, I do have worth. Like, I'm not a bad person and uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not living necessarily in the exact way I want to live. And there's a process to get there and there's people around me that want to support me and I can do this. And that, oh man, there's some beautiful momentum and power in that light bulb moment for them. So we encourage people to, to face their shame head on and, mm-hmm. and, and learn from it. Oftentimes shame is, is, is and, and addiction at large is, is a manifestation of some you know, other unmet needs in their lives. Right, like, yeah. you know, there's, there's things that are maybe driving that those behaviors that as we listen and pay attention to and, and sit with those feelings, we can, rather than smothering them and ha- making them go away, we can learn from them. Um, just as physical pain helps us kind of learn to, to avoid those pains and to be aware, uh, emotional pain can also do the same. And so being sitting with those feelings of shame or those feelings of, of pain can really help us understand maybe what needs, needs more attention in our lives than that we're not giving it. Maybe there's some relationship improvements or mm-hmm. maybe it's some self-care aspects in my life that are driving some of these behaviors that, that I'm maybe not, not fully aware of. Yeah. Yeah. It's so helpful that, and, and this, you know, I love the concept of taking like facing the shame straight on and, and it's easy to interpret, you know, as a church leader on the other side of the desk to interpret their shame is guilt. I'm like, oh, they're like a a crying mess here because they feel a lot of guilt. Like, no, actually, it'd be best to default to they're feeling a lot of shame. Like, how could I do this? You know, and and they're just overwhelmed by that. And I've so, let God down. Yeah, I've let. He's I so disappointed in me. I can yeah. never get on my knees again. I can never right. pray to him. I'm not worthy to pray. I'm not worthy to. And and that that's a really dark place to be. Yeah. A lot of people will put. I push against this. This idea of like. In relationships, like, well, I am not worthy of, of love. And therefore, until I have been sober or clean mm. for a certain period of time, I was once asked uh, in a Q&A session, 
someone asked like, well, you know, how long do I need to be sober before I can get back into a relationship or before I can, you know, engage in, in a romantic companionship? And I thought, well, that's a, that's an interesting way to position that question. And, and maybe that's the wrong way to position that question mm-hmm. because it, it kind of like suggests that love is contingent upon, upon your perceived worthiness. Like love is conditional according to maybe a, a certain achievement of worthiness. And, and, and that is a really, that mentality is kind of bathing in shame. Mm-hmm. And it sets mm-hmm. you up to feel that shame. Whereas we, we got to recognize that like, yeah, you may not be in a position if you're a single individual looking for companionship, you might not feel ready for a relationship and that's fair. You might not feel ready, but, but don't feel, and, and, and if you were to engage in a relationship, you ought to be very honest about where you're at. No question. You don't just, you know, don't hide some, you know, some of those challenges that are very relevant to that, that relationship being founded in honesty and truth and candor. But to kind of think that I'm not worthy of this or and, and position that with God, I'm not worthy of God. I'm not going to pray or take the sacrament until I've been sober X amount of days mm-hmm. or, or months. And I'm not worthy of his love. I can't talk to him until. I just think that's such a, a dangerous mentality. It's like, no, you get on your knees more now than ever. Mm-hmm. You go to the temple if if the bishop is, if you're in a position where you can, you go to the temple, you get on your knees, you you attend, you participate because you need the spirit more now than ever to really help you feel that worth. Because ultimately, if we could feel the, what the Savior feels for us, it would it would blow our minds the amount of just complete unconditional love that just swarms around us mm-hmm. from him. So it is not conditional. Yeah. Why are we yep. conditional with our own love toward us? So I, yeah, I, I really think that, that uh, we need to kind of change that, that thought process and, and, and help people feel that they are worthy of love at all times. Their behaviors n- might need some, some support and correcting and, and guidance and some improvements, but they are worthy of love and God's love is, is never not there for them. Yeah. No, I, that's, man, you got the price, uh, the cost of admission right there. That, that's so helpful. So take me back to the, like these, as we try and talk about the, the issues of pornography in the context of church, like you talk about, you can't, you can't just come from a believing perspective with it. You know, it really helps when you, you bring some science in there and, and truth that way. But nor do you expect, you know, leaders to go out and read all these books and put together a slideshow presentation that, that has these components. So Fight the New Drug as a resource, like how could a, a church leader use Fight the New Drug and their many resources in order to help them present this information? Oh, yeah. Um, so Fight the New Drug is a 501c3 nonprofit. So like uh, it's it, there's a lot of wonderful, powerful, free key there, <laughs> free right. support. And not just from Fight and Drug, but from a lot of other organizations, uh, and to lean into those. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're dealing with children, there's some great books that uh, have been written by a number of different groups and individuals that that support, uh, you know, educating of young children on the topic. Fight and Drug has a lot of different resources. Everything from kind of a, a discussion blueprint on if you're you can, it's kind of choose your own adventure. You can identify who you are and who you're trying to talk to. So I might be a teen trying to talk to my parents, or I might be a parent trying to talk to my teens, or I might be a partner trying to talk to my loved one. And you can kind of identify who you are and who you're trying to talk to. And then it walks you through kind of 
how to approach the conversation, some ideas on some conversation starters, what to do, what not to do, mm-hmm. and, and kind of to facilitate a healthy discussion. And so that's a powerful resource. So that you can find that at uh, rtnd.org slash blueprint. We have a three-part documentary series that we spent years producing so and, and, and making. Yeah, uh, it's you. awesome. Uh, What's the title of it again? Uh, Brain Heart World. Brain Heart World, that's right. So yeah. Brain Heart World. So there's three episodes. Each episode focuses on a different a- aspect of, of kind of the three pillars of harm. So brain focuses on the neurological effects of pornography. Where I went to Germany and I- interviewed Dr. Simon Kuhn from the Max Planck Institute of Human Development. We went to Japan and interviewed neuroscientists and throughout the United States. Episode two is focused on the heart or relationships and connection and love. And episode three is on the world and our society and how and the implications there. So it's a beautiful three-part documentary series. You can watch one or all three. It's free. You can encourage people to watch in their homes. It's it's actually produced to be able to watch with your families. It's not like a documentary where you watch it about your kids. It's actually mm-hmm. you know more catered to, for your kids, and it's really uh, a beautiful and it's very entertaining. So very it's not, entertaining. the kids aren't going to get bored. You know, yeah, like uh, there's yeah. humor and there's fun and there's facts and there's animations and it's great. And there's a discussion guide that accompanies it that you can actually mm-hmm. use in a discussion. So it's a great resource uh, for for bishops. And also there's the, the, you know the website. There's a, a podcast uh, considered before consuming. And then the website itself just has so much, uh, you know, articles, information. You can go in and type in different things and things can be pulled up that can help you in preparation for a presentation, information. And of course, we can come out and help as well and speak. And I've done that many times and and we can help facilitate something on your own. So it doesn't, to us, it kind of doesn't matter. Our mission and goal is to just support in the way that, that they want us to get involved or not involved and even guidance and consulting, yeah. but just, we want to have the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, advocates of that. And I think sometimes we use that, that precious church time to, you know, quote unquote, give a lesson or, or present this information when in reality we could use that time for discussion. So getting people to watch the brain heart world outside of the, of mm-hmm. the church building or, or have a youth activity during the week where you watch the segment and then on Sunday use that as now let's have a discussion. What did you learn? What stood out? And then just having that discussion will have a natural impact of de-shaming, de-stigmatizing yes. this concept that well, way. Yeah. And, and, and I also want to bring up, of course, for those that are struggling, I mean, those are all kind of catered toward the, the, the discussion and the dialogue mm-hmm. on a larger context. But for an individual struggling, we have a powerful, powerful free resource for youth called Fortify. And I say we... It originated with Pfizer and Drug, and, and we carted off into this other entity now called Impact Suite, which is I'm also running, which is a technology company that focuses on the healing and recovery journey for a number of different issues, one of which being sexual compulsivity or pornography addiction. Mm-hmm. Fortify has been downloaded by hundreds of thousands of individuals in over 150 countries. It provides learning and education and and, and, um, and, and understanding and kind of a journey of that self-improvement and in addition to a community of others that are on that same journey to support them and and, and tracking to, you know, to, to visualize those improvements. So it's a really powerful companion to that recovery journey and it's free for young people. So uh, there's so many other great re, uh, yeah. organizations producing things. So I, I, I encourage a bishop to kind of go down the rabbit hole. Like kind of take some time and just go explore. It'll open your eyes. It'll open and ultimately your your, your membership's eyes. Mm-hmm. 
So talk to me about accountability in the context of, of this app or just in general. Like, is this accountability app or or because I've heard mixed reviews and I sort of have strong opinions, on, you know, because I felt like as a bishop, my role was to be that that accountability guy. Like I became the spiritual parole officer, right? Like, hey, text me every night. Like, let me know if you've slipped up, right? And it just never worked, right? And so I think there's more to accountability. It's important, but... Like how is it an accountability app or what should we understand about it? No, I mean, at its core, it's not an accountability app. Like a true accountability app might, you know, be tracking their behaviors online and reporting Mm -hmm. that to an accountability partner. And then, Mm -hmm. and then that would then, uh, you know, a conversation would then ensue. The way that you were describing accountability is is a little bit more just like, hey, let's check in on Tuesday, see how you did this week, uh-huh. or like you know, text me every morning and or every night, tell me how you doing. And and I'm not, I mean, that can be very powerful for some, and that can be really good. It, it's 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 a little bit involved. It's very involved for the bishop to kind of like follow up and yeah. do, doing that, as you know, <laughs> uh, doing that uh, ongoing. And it's also maybe missing some pieces because all it's doing is kind of saying like it it is adding a layer of like, I'm going to have to check in and therefore I better be good. Hmm. But it's kind of missing the, like the, that's addressing outer change. I look at this as like inner and outer change. Hmm. Outer change is like, you know, you know, things like, you know, that manifest externally, like I, you know, did I, or didn't I make my bed? And that's, but there's an inner change like I can make my bed, but but unless like there has been an interchange that actually drives my desires, like I want to make my bed, I might make my bed, which is an outer external change that some people could you know someone can observe. But unless I want it and desire it and crave it and, and and pursue it on my own free will, then it's not likely to stick long term. It's like I did something for a time and now I'm back, right? Much like a diet. If a diet is temporary, it wasn't, it, no interchange occurred. Mm-hmm. Like, if it's permanent, then interchange occurred. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Fortify it, it, at its core is not an accountability app. There is accountability function. So where people can sign up an ally, we call them allies. So that could be a bishop or that could be a, a partner or that could be a sponsor. Or it could be a yeah. sponsor, mm-hmm. whoever that is. And they can sign that person up and they have then access to some of the data and they could have conversations in that regard. But ultimately, you know, Fortify really, we get, literally daily just so many messages from fortify users around the world talking about how like it it just is supporting this journey and kind of opening their eyes to a process of healing that they were unaware of and and it really looks at getting at the root contributors and, and again addressing some of those deficiencies in these three key relationships and looking at nutrition and health and sleep and like you know mm. eat breathe move sleep we often talk about um whereas if, if those things are out of balance your vulnerability to this behavioral struggle increases. So it's not just looking at the behavior and saying, let's get rid of the behavior. Sobriety isn't just the absence of the behavior. It's really kind of living a life that is uh, devoid of, of even that, of that being a part of your, even on the table to, mm-hmm. to consider. Not even having a desire to yeah. say, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, so it really helps you know, drive, help people educate them on like who they are versus where they are. Yeah, they might be struggling right now, but that's not who they are. And it really helps drive the, the inner change, not just the outer change. And it really helps. So there's a beautiful, and there's, you know, animations there. It's all animated videos and it's really beautiful and it's powerful. And, and so, yeah, it, it's a great companion to that process. I would add it to the arsenal of things that they are involved yeah. in. The community that they might be parting, uh, a part of in a 12-step group. 
you know, add Fortify to this and it's going to just really improve their capacity. Yeah. And to me, it's just one more way to prepare young men and women for missionary services. They're going to encounter this, this app anyway. So right. let's get them started early. Yeah. 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 Amen. Yeah. All right. This may be a little random, but I'm, as I've done more and more interviews about pornography, addiction, compulsivity, however you want to frame it, I've, I've discovered there's like these two camps of like, some say you should never categorize this as an addiction and others say, no, actually we need to call it what it is and whatnot. And I've got my own opinions on this, but like, just where do you come at is around this concept of, of addiction and pornography? Great question. So I would say this, you framed it very well. Like we often want to put it into a binary conversation of like, is it or isn't an addiction? Right. Think of it from the individual standpoint, like the youth a 17-year-old boy saying, do I or don't I have an addiction? And it's it's an important question in their mind because they're thinking, well, if I do have an addiction, all these, these realities start to like all of this baggage uh, is associated with that term. And therefore the, that term applies to me and therefore all this baggage applies to me. Mm-hmm. If I don't have an addiction, then none of that applies to me and therefore I'm good and I'm fine and no, there's no problem. We need to stop talking about this in terms of do I or don't I have an addiction, Mm. like an on-off switch, Mm -hmm. yes or no. We need to start talking about it like a dimmer switch of it's a spectrum of struggle. Mm. And at the top of that is, you know, uh, addiction. And can someone be addicted to pornography? Yes. And I use that term in the literal format. Yes. Mm -hmm. Do we overuse that term? Yes. Gotcha. I get parents uh, reaching out to me saying, my child is addicted to pornography. And I dig a little deeper and I find out that they're watching, they've seen pornography four or five times. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, okay, <laughs> let's have a conversation about this. <laughs> or somebody that like, that views pornography once every several months. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm addicted. It's like, okay, okay, let's talk about that. Like, is there an impulsivity there? Is there a compulsivity there? For sure. Is there mm-hmm. an addiction there? Not by any clinical definition would that be considered as such. Well, I guess what, the reason why this is important that we stop framing it as an I, do I or don't I have an addiction and rather more of a dimmer switch of a spectrum of struggle is because um, A, it cuts both ways. The individual that's viewed pornography a handful of times and they now consider themselves mentally of having an addiction all that baggage that's associated with that term now applies to them when it really doesn't. And there's a lot of shame that can be associated with that. There's a lot of unnecessary kind of struggle that might, uh, of self-worth that might be associated with that. On the other side, uh, someone might say, I don't have an addiction because it's not clinically defined, but, and therefore they feel like, okay, I'm in the green when in fact they're kind of in this kind of yellow orange zone, <laughs> yeah, right? Where yeah. it's like, no, there's some issues here. And it's and the trajectory that you're on is heading toward. And so again, whether or not you possess the title or sorry, whether or not the, the, the term addiction applies to you or not is in my mind somewhat irrelevant. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't care. What matters is where are you? Mm-hmm. in the process. Where are you on the spectrum? And let's work to get you to a more healthy place. And let's work to support you on the journey of, of improvement because 
where you are isn't necessarily a sustainable place or a healthy place, regardless of what term applies to you. So we don't have to go get a clinical diagnosis to say, oh, we should or should not be concerned here. Mm-hmm. Where are you on the spectrum, right? And not from a, uh, an official kind of diagnosis perspective, but just from a, like a, a self-check, like, how am I doing? And uh, is this a problem? Yeah. Is this, is this uh, leading me toward um, strengthening my relationship with my Heavenly Father? Is this improving my relationships with my loved ones? Is this improving uh, the, my relationship with myself and, and how I view myself? Or is it hurting in these key relationships and categories? And so I think for bishops and for parents and for us as a society, uh, the term addiction, I fully, uh, based on all of my interviews and, and research with the literature from Dr. Simon Kuhn to Dr. Voon and Cambridge University and so many others that I've talked to uh, around the world, the term addiction is appropriate, but not for everybody that struggles with pornography. Yeah. And I think it. that's where we we miss, yeah. we trip up. I often see that it's almost like this, another tool, this label of addiction is a possible tool that you can maybe pick up and use. Because I've interact with some people who said it wasn't until I could actually define it and, and put my arms around and say, this is an addiction. Now I will go take care of it. Yes. Then I could actually make progress where others, they say, I just don't use that. It just hasn't helped me to label myself that way. Yeah. I, I think you're touching on something really important. And that is that again, whether or not it actually from a diagnosable clinical perspective applies, mm-hmm. some feel empowered by the term. Some, I talked to one individual that served a prison sentence based on some struggles that he had had and he acted out in ways that were inappropriate and illegal and he went to prison and it all stemmed from his struggle with pornography. In prison, he discovered a program that he was watching and it talked about addiction and it was like his seat you know, burst into flames and he, he, like a light bulb went on and he was just like, that's me. Hmm. And he just, it, it was this like, for him, it was this profoundly emboldening and and kind of relieving moment for him to like mm-hmm. recognize that there was a, a name for his struggle because he just thought he was really broken and bad and, mm-hmm. and you know all that shame but he realized oh there's a term that means that there's a solution that means that we can work working on it and i don't have to struggle with this for the rest of my life and so it's true that some people find um find uh, a lot of comfort or at least purpose in the meaning and uh or sorry in the term and i i, I think Whatever feels right, go with it. But I, I do caution uh, when we're talking at large into to the masses, caution the overuse of the term, mm-hmm. especially when we're talking about young people. Yeah, When we talk about 12 and 13-year-olds having an addiction to pornography, I, I, I cringe mm-hmm. because it's a rare, rare case that that would actually be true. And it probably does more damage in that context than good. Yeah, A 50, 60-year-old man that is struggling and, and identifies with that and finds empowerment in the term, fantastic. Whether yeah. it is accurate or not, fantastic. Yeah. And I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't lose any sleep over using the term if they feel that is yeah. empowering to them. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Man, there, there's so much we could continue to cover. Maybe there's a future, uh, more of this in your, in your future with me, whether you like it or not, Clay. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. But maybe just quickly give us a review of your work in, in mental health. Um, obviously, you know, pornography use can be very much a factor in mental health struggles, but what should we consider on, on that side of things as, as a church leader? Yeah. I mean, they're very connected, right? They're, they're very, 
uh, one that's uh, an individual struggling with pornography often is struggling with their mental health as well. Mm-hmm. And mental health, really, I stumbled into this world unintentionally. So I own a company called Impact Suite that, that runs a suite or, or, or you know, cr- has created a suite of digital health tech apps mm-hmm. that, that support individuals on, on this journey. Of and Fortify being one of those, right? Fortify is one of those. Turn is for substance abuse. Lift is for depression, anxiety. Climb is for self-improvement. So, you know, these, uh, these, these apps that focus on these. And so, you know, the, the, here's our mission at Impact Suite. The larger narrative around mental health is that, have you ever heard this? Like people talk about, like we asked this one woman and she said, hey, what is depression? And she's like, well, it's this glitch in my brain that doesn't produce the chemicals that allow me to be happy. Mm-hmm. You heard that? Yeah, I've heard that, yeah. 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 We hear that a lot. We hear that it's just kind of this, this chemical imbalance and like you were born with a, just a, you know, a bad deal brain and uh, this is your life. And the best we can now do or hope for is just to manage and cope and to improve to the best of our abilities, your situation. Yeah. And, 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 but, but this will be a life sentence. And that's, I mean, I'm not making this up. That, that is the dominant narrative around mental mm-hmm. health for most people. And it's so depressing. It's such a depressing story we tell about depression um, <laughs> that many give up. Many just say, I, I'm, I'm, what's I the use? I right. the, what's the use? I, yeah. and, and that happened, that, that has happened for many. That even happened with my own family members mm-hmm. who, who at a young age were told that this was going to be a life sentence and we can do our best to manage and cope with it. And, um, you know, they said, no, I can't do that. Mm. And, uh, and so this is a plague. I mean, if we look at, uh, if I, if we had, um, a screen, I could, I could show you and your listeners could see this, but ultimately what we're seeing now in the realm of mental health, I know that we, the, the buzz is that this is a, a challenge that we've never seen before. This is like a, a big problem. I can't overstate that from a, if you break down the numbers from uh, age cohort, you mean like you know, individuals 60 years and above, individuals, you know, uh, uh, 40 and 50 years, uh, all the way down to like 18 to, to 29 and broke it up into different age cohorts, you would see that individuals and the younger generations are dealing with this at unprecedented levels. A recent study showed in 2020 that 57% of young kids ages 18 to 29, so I guess not so much kids, but yeah. young adults, 18 <laughs> to 29, we're dealing with major depressive disorder, hmm. 57%. Wow. That is dramatically higher than previous generations. So the trajectory of harm that we're facing is daunting to say the least. Yeah. And so we got to think of like, okay, well, you know, we've spent more money in mental health in, in recent decades than ever before. There's more therapists per capita than any other time in human history. And antidepressants are up 500% in the last decade. But yet, it keeps going up. It keeps going up. So we need to like wow. step back and say, well, what, what what is going on? And I believe that there's a better way. And there's a lot of evidence toward this. And I won't go into all this. This isn't the intention of this episode. But within the realm of mental health, there's been this belief that it's kind of like it's part of the human genome. It's part of like you were born this way with this struggle. Now, I'm not discounting genetic predispositions and that does play a role. But what we have discounted and at a costly level, what we have discounted is the role 
that our lifestyles and environments have played in our collective mental health. It, it's led researchers from like uh, Clark University and the University of Washington to, to describe the increase of depressed individuals to a depressogenic society. They refer to it as a depressogenic society, meaning a society that sets its members up to struggle in these areas. Basically, that we are bathing in these risk factors. We're bathing in these struggles that are perpetuating the very challenges that we are facing today. So it's no wonder. In fact, a man by the name of Edward Schifflin, um, many years ago, he, he wanted to kind of test this theory. And he uh, went to a, a tribe in the northern region of Papua New Guinea, and he actually studied this group. And he wanted to find, he interviewed 2,000 members, and he wanted to see, is depression as common or prevalent in this tribe that's largely disconnected from modern civilization, mm. modern lifestyle conditions, Western way of living. And he wanted to see, is, is depression just as prevalent there as it is with, with the way we live? And, and if so, then it would be maybe part of the human genome, something that's kind of genetically passed on regardless of environmental conditions. And what he found is that only one person in over 2,000 interviews came even close to meeting diagnostic criteria for depression. Wow. They later did more <laughs> research and found that people, tribes in Brazil and even the Amish here in the United States, where they were like looking at tribes or groups of people that were largely disconnected from modern ways of living, all of which had the same results, which led them to recognize that depression and addiction are largely diseases of civilization, diseases mm -hmm. of lifestyle, and are not necessarily part of our genetic makeup as much as we previously believed, but they are expressions of our conditions that we find ourselves in. Wow. So what does that tell us? A, that should be, and what we now know about neuroplasticity and how the brain changes based off of experiences and it happens throughout our entire lives, that our brains are constantly evolving based on those experiences. What that teaches us is that this, is, this should be really exciting news to those that have been told that this is a lifelong sentence because it means that there are actually things that we can do. Small iterative adjustments in our lifestyles, in our relationships with self, relationship with others, and relationship with higher power, that can catalytically improve our capacity to handle these challenges or, or reduce our vulnerability in these areas. Studies from the University of Kansas have found one researcher by the name of Dr. Stephen Alardi, who wrote The Depression Cure, he said that we were never designed for the sedentary, indoor, sleep-deprived, fast-food-laden, frenetic pace of modern life. And it was like, oh, that's so beautiful. <laughs> like, it's like, yes, we like, it's no wonder that we have an epidemic of mental health in our society yeah. because we have positioned ourselves to be struggling. But here's the good news. So you could say, well, then what's the point? Because I live in this yeah, world I mean, and I'm not leaving this I world. I can't so like, move to Papua New Guinea. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> not going to move to the mountains and become, or, you know, so that can be depressing. But the reality is it's, it's very exciting because as individuals, and this research is very clear, thousands of studies have identified this. As we look at making those small iterative lifestyle improvements in those three relationship categories that I discussed, broadly speaking, but then if you drill in and say, okay, you know, how am I doing with my exercise and my sleep and my, my past trauma and my mindfulness and my, you know, relationship with others and my time management, my financial management, all of these things contribute and are risk factors and vulnerability factors for one's struggle. So as we make small improvements in these areas, especially the ones that we're struggling in, the results have been just astounding and so exciting. Wow. Like they're not linear. That's what's cool is that the studies have shown and even in our own data 
It's not a brick by brick linear improvement. Mm. As you make small improvements, the, the effect on your mental health starts to become, as I've mentioned, catalytic. And it mm -hmm. really starts to kind of compound and improve in a more of a hockey stick fashion rather than a linear uh, slope or plane. Which again, this, is, this needs to be shouted from the rooftops on our, this epidemic that we're facing. And so we've dedicated some energy into producing con uh, content, but also resources where people, we can hold their hand through that journey of healing mm. improvement in the mental health space, but also in the addiction recovery space. And that's what, that's what those tools do. Nice. And, and so this, uh, obviously, you know, therapy, you know, having a therapist might be a good resource. Reading some books is another resource, Fantastic. but, you know, working in some of these apps and being aware of them you know, as maybe a bishop or a Relief Society president is facing somebody really struggling with their mental health. And, you know, you almost wish you could just give them a pill and you're happy now, right? Good. Yeah. All right. Move on. Thanks for yeah. coming. Right. And, and medication plays its role, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but we sure. rely on it too much as a yeah, society, yeah. as a long-term crutch. But yeah. So they could maybe point them towards this Lyft app or other apps that you have yeah. and say, hey, why don't you give this a try? You know, you're, you know, it's worth, what, what else have you tried? At least you could try this, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and they may find some encouragement in that that uh, will improve their life. Yeah. Uh, I, we believe that. Oh, we, we've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. You got the, you got the numbers. The research, <laughs> you got right? the numbers. Man, Clay, we gotta gotta do this again. It's always fun yeah. to to learn from you and and pick your brain. Anywhere else you would send people, uh, and we'll link to all this in the show notes or whatnot. But yeah, fight the new drug. You have impact suite of apps and whatnot. Lift, yeah, uh, fortify, and all these things. Anywhere else you'd send them. Oh, I, I mean, through those two don't, uh, URLs, I'm sure they can find quite okay. a bit. And so, cool. yeah, I, I mean, I would just say to bishops, to state presidents, to to any leader who's listening to this in the church. Uh, I mean, I, I am just so profoundly grateful for the the service that uh, the leaders of the church are providing uh, for no compensation other than hopefully on the other side, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Uh, no, uh, but no, just it's so beautiful. And you guys you are know, doing such a fantastic job of, of, of sharing that love to the members of, of the world. Nice. And we need it more today than we've ever needed it. Yeah. There are challenges ahead of us that uh, are going to need us to link arms together and, and rise up. And uh, I believe that. All right. Last question I have for you. Okay. Because you're like my kindred spirit, man. Like here we are, like we didn't pick these careers. Like God said, put us on these paths and said, this is what you're going to do. You're going to be in the nonprofit space yeah. and good luck, you know? Yeah. And it's just been remarkable to have these missions and whatnot. And and so in your own right, like you've been a leader in this space. I mean, you've done things and gone places that maybe most people wouldn't consider. So in this leadership role that you've had throughout your career and in these spaces, how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Well, okay. That's a great question. <laughs> Boom. <there> yeah. <laughs> I would say that being a leader and I'm assuming others will, could relate to this. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one, but being a leader exposes some of a lot of my inadequacies mm. and uh, it, it makes me realize just how reliant I am on the savior. I look back at what I've accomplished or what I've done and without him at the center or, or his help or involvement, none of it would have happened. Right. And uh, I, I'm so grateful for, you know, uh, ultimately his support. And, and so attempting or striving to become more Christ-like has been critical in my leadership journey because I realized just how weak I am. And if he's not behind me, I don't stand very tall. So I, that's not to minimize individual's worth, 
that wasn't the intention of that comment, but rather to say how how much we uh, need his support in in our leadership. And so, yeah, I, I guess as I look at the type of leader he was and what he accomplished in a very short ministry here on earth, I can find a lot of inspiration for 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 what I I attempt to do and strive to do. I and I don't always do it the way I want to do it, but uh, I'm so grateful for his example. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. We'd love to hear from you about your questions or thoughts or comments. You can either leave a comment on the uh, post related to this episode at leadingsaints.org or go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us your perspective or questions. If there's other episodes or topics you'd like to hear on the Leading Saints podcast, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and share with us the information there. And we would love for you to share this with any individual you think this would apply to, especially maybe individuals in your ward council or other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, go to leadingsaints.org slash 14 to access our full Liberating Saints virtual library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.